Good morning. So Dodgers won. I'm a Cubs fan. But, but I'm rooting for the Dodgers now, National League. Okay, good enough. Hey, we're going to get back to God. If you're a guest with us, don't feel like you need to do that. That's just something we do as a church family to support the ministries here and to say thanks to God for all of his provision. So um, I just want to quickly talk about uh, something that, that I've been thinking about. You know, we live our lives, I think we live our lives answering questions. Like, am I worthy of love? Am I successful? Am I, when you're younger, when you're good looking, when you're old, you're just, am I still keeping most of my hair? Um, whatever the question you live by, we have all kinds of questions we live by. Uh, but there are some questions that are much more important than other questions. Uh, for example, who is Jesus? Every person really needs to come to grip with the question of who Jesus is. Because how you answer that question determines every other question in your life. Who is Jesus? Uh, John the Baptist, uh, interesting, because there was a point that he seemed to know who Jesus was, and then he got put in prison, and he's like, I'm not sure. And he sent his disciples to find out, are you the one, or is there another one that we should be looking for? He wanted to make sure he knew who Jesus was, because that's the most important question. And uh, I have friends, I have, I have a friend who's uh, in, in Israel, <laughs> a Jewish friend in Israel, we traveled there, and, and she thinks she knows who Jesus is. problem is that who she thinks Jesus is is contrary to what Jesus said about himself. And so a lot of people don't give a lot of thought or they kind of give into preconceived ideas. But coming to understand who Jesus is is a powerful thing because once you understand who Jesus is, that he was exactly who he said he was, the Son of God, God incarnate, came to redeem all of humankind. Once you realize that, you begin to realize some other things. You begin to realize what John the Baptist realized was that he must increase, I must decrease. In other words, his agenda is much more important than my agenda for the world and for my life. Once I realize that who he is, I realize that his work is more important than any other work, that his outcomes are the desired outcomes for my life and for this world, much ahead of, far ahead of anything that I could self-conceive. And so I realize that answering the question of who Jesus is, is really important. And if I answer that, and I understand that he is who he said he is. By the way, uh, for those of you who are in, in your 20s, um, Jay Warner Wallace tonight is going to be uh, speaking at Young Adults. Now, that really relates to the topic I'm talking about because Jay Warner Wallace was a detective who set out to disprove that Jesus was who he said he was and ended up coming to believe that Jesus was exactly who he said he was. And so if you're in your 20s, you'd like to come check that out, 18 to 30-ish, you want to check out. If you're older than that, just sneak in the back, okay? Don't let him know uh, who you are, wear a hat, do something. I don't know, but he's going to be sharing in young adults. going to be powerful, great guy. We had him speak here a few weeks ago and did a great job. Once you come to understand that Jesus was exactly who he said, then you, some other questions arise. Like, what am I supposed to do in light of that? And there's this passage, it's in, it's in Luke. We actually studied it in our rooted groups this week. It was just a great study and kind of reminded me of some, some incredible things. And in, in Luke chapter 10, we find that Jesus, uh, an expert in the law, if you will, a guy who's going to kind of trip Jesus up, and he came to ask Jesus a question. And, and here's what it sounds like, starting in, in verse 25 of Luke 10. It says this, um, uh, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus' teacher. He asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? Jesus asked him, How do you, what do you think it is? And, and he answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you'll live. Jesus is like, yeah, it's good. 
But this guy had an agenda. He had a hidden agenda. What's interesting is we never have theoretical discussions with God. It's interesting to talk theology, interesting to talk theory. But when you're talking to Jesus, he always wants to move beyond just kind of stuff out here and get to what's going on in your heart. And what was going on in this guy's heart was pride. This guy had pride. He wanted to prove that he was more righteous, kept the rules better than everybody else, that he deserved to go to heaven more than anybody else. And so he couldn't just let the answer be the answer, and Jesus knew that. And so what happens next is very interesting. So he says this, um, but he wanted, speaking of the, the, the expert in the law, but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? When we come to understand who Jesus is, this should be a question we should be asking pretty quickly thereafter. If I understand that Christ died for me and has forgiven all that I've ever done wrong and has this incredible care and compassion for me and loves me um, unconditionally, then I automatically, automatically will begin to look around to who else I can share this good news with and this love with. And I begin to look. So this guy's going, who's my neighbor? In other words, what's the bare minimums I have to do for the people around me in order to get into heaven? Whereas as a Christian, I want to say, what is the maximum I could do for Jesus to help others so they get to go to heaven? See, there's a huge contrast. And who is my neighbor? And he's trying to say, wait, you know, is it, is it like the guy that looks like me, talks like me, same race as I am, since, you know, lives next door? Who is it? And Jesus tells this amazing story that we know as the story of the Good Samaritan, which, by the way, in that day would have been an oxymoron. There was no such thing as a good, good Samaritan. The Jews hated the Samaritans. They thought the Samaritans were terrible people. They had perverted the faith, and they had intermarried with other religions, and they just hated them. And so when Jesus tells a story and makes the hero of his parable, of his story, a Samaritan, all the Jews are immediately offended, which is exactly what I wanted to see happen, especially the, the religious Jews, the, the super, you know, righteous, self-righteous, actually, Jews. And so he begins to tell how a man was beaten up, left for dead, and how the super religious types came by and walked right by him, and then a Samaritan, a no good, low down, dirty Samaritan, stopped and cared for this guy. And then he said, and who, who is the loving one in this? Who was the neighbor? Who and the guy has to say, he makes this religious leader say, the Samaritan was the good guy. He's kind of adding insult to injury a little bit. But he's making this powerful point. And then he says, now you go and do the same. One of the commands that we're to do as Christians is we're to understand how much God loves us and to receive his love and forgiveness. But we are not to put, just to sit on it or certainly not be proud about it as this man seemed to be. We are to share it. Who is your neighbor? I wanted to give you just a, a, a quick thing that out of our, our, my rooted study, and I wrote this down, and, and I don't know where I read it, uh, but whoever you come across that has a problem that you can help, whoever God brings across your path that you have the ability to somehow help them, that is your neighbor. And you may find your neighbor in surprising places and surprising people, and you may have things to give, to offer, that surprise you. And yet, it is what we're to do. It is what makes life incredible. This great adventure he has. Sometimes just telling you that is, is not also all that effective. Sometimes we need to look at somebody who's doing that. And today we have somebody we want you to meet who is doing this in a powerful way. And we want to share her example with you of what it means to care for your neighbor. Watch.
heart may break, but broken hearts can heal and you can be better than you ever were before that happened. So about a, I think it was about a year and a half ago, I was watching, I cannot remember what I was watching, I think it was either the news or something, I can't remember what it was, and, and uh, I saw this feature on this lady who uh, adopts terminally ill children, and she began to talk about what she does, and then she began to talk about her own Christian faith, and I said, we need to get a hold of this lady and get her at Seacoast, because we need to hear what she's up to. And, uh, and so we reached out, and um, it turns out she doesn't travel much, because she has kids to take care of. And, and, and so we've been communicating back and forth, and, and then this week, um, got a Facebook message that said, hey, I'm in Mexico. Uh, I'm actually getting some medical treatment done, and uh, I don't know if that's close to you guys. I don't know what, what the deal is, but I, I feel like I should probably... I don't know, just get in contact. And if you guys want me to come and, and share a little bit, uh, come pick me up. And we said, okay, we could do that. Uh, oh yeah, and by the way, I need some clothes because I wasn't planning on speaking. So can you help me with that too? Not a problem. We have stores. Yes, we could do that. And so, um, so we connected with, with Corey and she said that she would, uh, would come and share with us today. And so we're so excited that she's uh, she stopped in and she's going to um, kind of share what she's up to. And so just real quick, introduce yourself, tell us who you are, where you're from. I'm from Wisconsin. <laughs> Not originally, I'm from Salt Lake, so I kind of grew up in Salt Lake in Colorado and then moved out east to Wisconsin, and then I moved out even more east to Pennsylvania, and so I have a total conglomeration of all of those accents, so nobody knows really where I'm from. Um, little southern, <laughs> little, yeah, hey there, you know, kind <laughs> of youpers. Uh, so, I grew, grew up in Salt Lake for the most part, spent five years in Colorado. Um, we were Mormon to begin with, and because of a vacation Bible school with a little tiny Baptist church that typically ran about 30 people, but would have 300 kids show up for vacation Bible school, because parents <laughs> had a lot of kids that, you know, were little, and to get rid of them for the morning was something that they just couldn't resist. And so we went off to Bible school, and it was through the follow-up for that that my parents came to know Christ as their personal Savior, and so did I. And so I determined, yes, so your trunk or treat thing, oh my goodness, you know, get all over it. You have no idea who you're going to impact through some five-year-old that wants to come and, and do that. Um, so grew up, you know, in this little tiny Baptist church, and a number of missionaries were generated from there, so I was always so willing to go, you know, and just, dear Jesus, send me anywhere, only go with me, and um, I have decided to follow Jesus. I would sing that with my whole heart, and I had visions of um, India or Africa, you know, anywhere but the United States, and definitely not Wisconsin. <laughs> so, and God had other plans. Uh, I went on a number of mission trips, but went to Bible college in Wisconsin and met my husband, and the first time I saw him, he does not have a lot of hair, he just had a glow, and he said, yeah, it was probably the shiny head, whatever, <laughs> but he turned around and smiled at me, and I was like, oh my goodness, that's the man I'm going to marry, and I turned around, and I thought, you're 18 years old, you don't even know his name, you don't know whether he's married, I mean, get a grip. And, uh, well, come to find out he was 29 and had just gotten out of the military and he wanted to go to India. And I'm like, oh 
yes, we're destined to be. And he said, where did you want to go? And I said, well, India. And he's like, really? And he went back and told his dorm buddies that. And they said, you could have told you wanted to go to Timbuktu, and that would have been where you want, she wanted to go. And that made me mad. <laughs> I wanted to go to India long before I knew Mark F. Salkert. Um, so that was, that was my prayer. And we, we went through Bible college. And um, we, we were going to be foreign missionaries. And God accepted that gift that we laid at that altar, but he had, he had other plans for us. We got married um, right after I graduated from nursing school, May 28, 1988, and uh, we had decided that, you know, we wanted a large family. 14 was kind of our goal at that point in time, and um, yeah, we're our little nuts, and it has nothing to do with our background of being Catholic or Mormon, because um, now we're Baptists. And uh, <laughs> so, anyway, we had decided on 14, and we got right to work, and nine months, four hours later, we had Sarah. And uh, <laughs> so, that may be TMI, but um, so we had eight kiddos in 12 years, and quite efficient, not as efficient as others, but that's what we nailed. And um, so... I am a registered nurse, and I worked hospice uh, for a number of years. I worked all over the hospital in a number of different disciplines, but hospice was where my heart was. And then I stayed home for about 10 years and had more kids and, uh, and was busy about, you know, caring for my home. And then God just created circumstances where I needed to go back to work again. And I decided I'm going to go to OB because I'm going to go to the other end of the spectrum. And I uh, found out very quickly that on that labor delivery floor that babies die and that they die in the womb, and that they die shortly after. And those families didn't want to be there in that situation. And they needed a nurse that wasn't wanting to be anywhere but there also. And so God used that hospice heart that I had, and I walked into labor and delivery and came alongside those families in the grief that they never anticipated having. And uh, so, love my job. I started a program called Hope After Loss Organization, and uh, HALO was the acronym for that. And I was a bereavement specialist, and I absolutely loved what I did. I did not like the circumstances. I could not change the fact that that baby had died or was going to, but I had a great deal of ability to influence how things would be framed so that some good memories could be made in the midst of such tragedy. That when they looked back, it wasn't all sad. So you, uh, you love your career, something that you feel like, man, this is you know, what I'm called to do, yeah. and then disruption. You lose mm -hmm. it. Yes. Uh, my health started dramatically failing in 2008, and uh, you know, I, it was just, I have a number of autoimmune diseases, and they were all flaring and, and causing a great deal of pain and distress, and I was on a lot of medications to just take care of symptoms. And, um, went from doctor to doctor and treatment to treatment that really was not very effective. And uh, the pain was almost unbearable and I would have such spasms and then I would take medication for that and then come home and collapse into bed. And let's just say that my health was royally getting in the way of my being able to minister God's getting presence and I had not embraced my health at all. It was just annoying. And um, I'm gonna jump in here and share what I did at the beginning first service, okay? So um, things spiraled down, and 
I will tell you from a medical perspective, 85 to 90% of the serotonin, you feel good, you know what, I'm doing good hormone is produced in your gut. And when your gut is ravaged, you don't produce that. And it's very difficult to continue to put one foot in front of the other and deal with your circumstances. You just don't have the same frame of mind. And mine was shot. And I finally got tired of being sick and tired. And I had prayed for 40 some years that God would relieve me of my physical distresses. And he had no answered. And they continued to get worse. And I also had something else out there that was really difficult and that had been the life and the death of my younger sister, that somehow God had failed me there. And so that sense of desperation that he couldn't be counted on just totally grew and I believed the lies that the enemy said that he doesn't really see you, he doesn't really know you, or he would step in and he would make this better. And I decided, you know what, if you're not gonna fix it here, then you can deal with it, because I'm, I'm going to heaven. I know that Jesus is my savior, and it's not about good works. And I know you don't like this idea, but I'm done. I'm done. And I decided one night that I just, I took too many sweet sleeping pills, not a prescribed dose, and I was just gonna fall asleep, and I was gonna wake up in heaven. Now let me tell you from a nursing perspective, that doesn't happen. Our bodies are fearfully and wonderfully made. And when poison is in there and you've got stuff in there that you should not, you poop it out or you puke it. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> your body will preserve to your last breath. And God preserved mine that night in spite of my not wanting him to. And I obviously did not die. And I ended up at the same hospital that I worked at which was even more horrific, because when you fail at life, and then you can't even die right, it was just ridiculous. And the hospitalist told me, you know, you're a nurse, you should know that you're just gonna throw up these pills. And I hadn't known it, because I hadn't done a whole lot of research, I just figured this would be an easy way out, and I'm done, and he can mop up the mess. And he left me with the mess. So I'm gonna tell you that I laid on my floor, I had to go back to work, because I was still alive. And I had a woman who came up to me and said, what right do you have to tell anyone about hope after anything? And I didn't really have a whole lot to say to her. But I am here to tell you in the last almost 10 years, God has stepped in and said, your hope has nothing to do with you being able to cope or you being able to do what you gotta do. Your hope is in God. So that's why I have the right to tell people about hope after loss is because my Jesus is good and he's faithful and he redeems the broken. So you <clears throat> end up uh, having this illness that uh, almost kills you, yeah. obviously you can't go back to work. Um, all of the things that you were enjoying, being a nurse, all that, all that is taken away. Um, you're trying to get some kind of treatment to, to get better, and along the way, you get a phone call. Yes, okay, so, so real quick, let's just catch up. So my sister, um, four years younger than me, uh, contracted spinal meningitis when she was four months old, Christmas Day, 1969 
and was profoundly mentally retarded after that, mentally handicapped, that was our word back then. Um, profoundly mentally handicapped after that, seizured all the time, unable to walk, and could not stop crying, banging her head on the floor and on the rails and chewing on, it was a mess. And uh, my mom and dad were in a position where financially they were devastated because of that. They've got three other kids they're trying to take care of, and they do not have anyone telling them, you know what, you can do this. How can I help? Instead, it was, you can't. You can't. You can't. How can you? And they were already feeling overwhelmed. And so my sister, at five years old, was put in an institution. And then my parents were told, don't come visit because Amy needs to bond with her new caregivers and you will end up disrupting that. She will not understand if you're here why you're not caring for her. So at nine years of age, my sister disappears. And I just got the message that you better not cry and you better not be sick or guess what? You're gonna be too much and you'll disappear. And I carried that for years, wondering why it is that, you know, Amy just was gone. And then when I was 15 and Amy was 11, um, she was at the institution and had gone to the bathroom and she managed to find her way out of an outside door and then out of the fence that guarded the property and onto a golf course next door. And she found a lake and she went swimming. And she drowned and no one was there, and no one humanly intervened so that that didn't happen. And I asked God, after wrestling with it for years and feeling like I had an area of woundedness where he had failed, to finally heal it, because I was sick and tired of being wounded. And when he says that he cannot ignore the cries of the brokenhearted, I called him on it. I said, I'm brokenhearted don't ignore me. And I laid that out in the song by Selah, it may be unfulfilled, it may be unrestored, but anything that's shattered, that's laid before the Lord, you watch and see, it will not be unredeemed. I said, all right, take the mess and you do something with it. So, August 2012, I am out of work, I've lost my health, I've lost my job, my health is slowly coming back because of the restorative properties of going to San Aviv, which is the hospital just across the border in Mexico where I've been this last week. Um, my health is, is, is coming back, but not fully restored, so I'm not going to be able to go back to work. Financially, we're in debt, so much pain, so much loss, and it's just redeemed the mess. I have no idea what kind of good you're going to bring out of this because I'm not seeing any good at all. And we got a call in August that there was a baby that had been left in the NICU because mom and dad could not deal and they needed to step away. It was more than what they could handle. And that child was going to die. And they called me because of my role as a bereavement specialist and having walked through the death of babies and said, will you take this child home and love on her until she passes away? And our family said yes. And my husband once upon a time had said, no, I don't think so. We're not bringing that home. You deal with it at work. I'm not, we're not doing this at home. And he was in a position after I almost lost my life of saying, you know what, God? Yeah, okay, we will, we will walk this road. And let me tell you this. This baby had no name and no family and was going to die. What we could change 
was to give her a name and to give her a family and to make sure that that child lived before she took her last breath. And so we had that power in our hands to be able to make that difference for her. And he enabled us to step up and do what we did with Emmeline. Yeah, well, we were talking um, before service this morning, and I, you know, I, I guess I never thought about it, and, and pretty naive, and I was talking to a, a, a NICU nurse in between mm -hmm. services, and, uh, and I was like, how often does this happen? And she's saying, all the time. People come in from the streets and come in, and they know that their child is gonna be severely disabled, and, and, um, and so they'll just leave the baby here, you know? And then we just come in on our shifts and care for the baby until the baby passes away. And I was like, that just boggles my mind, you know? That just is, and so I was talking to this nurse, right, before this service, and she's like, yeah, we just, you know, we need people to care for these kids and to hold them and to cuddle them. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, that just, it, it, it's, it's, it's amazing how God works. Eh? Yeah, it's, it's, it just boggles my mind. A anyway, and so we're gonna talk about that later, but you decided to do something. So you bring Emma Lynn home and you give her the best 50 days that you can imagine. Yeah. So this, this kiddo is uh, about six pounds and 16 inches, you know, just a little tiny bundle and um, doesn't have much of a brain to work with, only has a brain stem, so still breathing on her own. And uh, we just took her home and pretty much wore her. She just was in our arms all the time. She couldn't regulate her temperature and we took her everywhere. Uh, beach, the bank, the bookmobile, she just, she went and took her to a Winona Judd concert and she just jammed right along with us. <laughs> How did you get to me? Anyway, um, so Emmeline was just so much joy and then her last day she was just a little punky and it was like, what are you doing Chica? This is uncharted territory for me and I don't, I don't know. And I had a friend who said, you know what, you promised to love her through this and you don't need to necessarily know everything that's coming next. You just need to trust the one who does. And it was like, God, you know what? I want her in my arms when she dies, and we had no idea when it was that she was gonna pass away, and that night, everybody was home and in the family. All the kids were able to hold her, and Mark was walking around with her head up against under his chin, and supposedly she was blind and deaf and everything else, and we just said, yeah, you know what, that's great, and then we just treated her like a normal human being. And uh, so Mark was singing to her, and he was all tucked up, and then uh, everybody was going off to bed because they had to go to school the next morning. And he asked me, are you gonna stay up with her? And I said, yes, and mind you, this is a couple hours past my bedtime, which is not a normal thing for me because when I am done with my day, I'm, I'm done. And uh, so I, I took all of Emmeline's clothes off except for a little tiny diaper, and I took mine off except for my big ugly green bathrobe, and I tucked that baby in against my chest, and I did kangaroo care, which is just skin to skin so that the babies can absorb the the heat from mama, and, um, and I just sat there at the dining room table, and I rocked her, and I was trying to sing, and on a good day, I can't sing, so, you know, it's good she couldn't hear, because then it wasn't painful, and, uh, and she just slowly stopped breathing, and the last thing that she heard was my heartbeat, and she woke up, in a blaze of glory, able to run and dance and think and do everything that her little body would not allow her to do here. And that's how we got started with medical 
treatment foster care because we wanted to be in a position crazy enough to do this again. And we started the process of getting licensed and they came in and you know what? They have to be very careful because you know, you've read the stories of foster care placements that are just from Hades, that the kids are not in a better situation having been left their parents to go to foster care. And ours is very careful to sift through everything, to weed out those that are not gonna be a better alternative. And as they came up, they said, you have this chapter 51, which is, you know, you're a, you're a danger to yourself in your past history. And they laughed, and I told my husband, I said, we don't have to do that, because that dude doesn't even think you need to know what he had for lunch yesterday, let alone what his finances or anything else is. And my husband, who normally would like back out of that as fast as he could, said, we are not gonna quit. We're gonna see this process through and they can comb through and find whatever it is that they find, but they're gonna tell us that they don't want us, Corey Marie. We're not gonna walk away wondering if we'd stayed steady, whether or not this is something that we would be doing. And maybe Emmeline was given to us to begin with so that we would persevere with how difficult it can be to be able to get licensed. And I'm here to tell you, that after you do psych evals and everything else, yeah, I am a little crazy because I've got a lot of kids and I want to have more. Um, but other than that, you know, we're, we're good. And so we started into this medical treatment foster care, got licensed in 2013. And then Charlie came on the scene and he's that baby. And I look at those pictures that were up on there and oh, my husband holding Charlie. I, my man is 62 years old and he's got a three-year-old, which is just crazy. But it's a beautiful thing. We walked into Charlie knowing that he was medically complicated. We have a home ICU set up at our house. We have a vent, we have a pulse ox, we have, and this is not my cup of tea. I do hospice because I know I can make a difference. I don't really like medically complicated that I can screw up and make an error and hurt them. So God just said, nope, you're gonna overcome that. You're gonna overcome that because his Destiny is to lay there in that hospital day after day with no one if you don't decide that my purposes here are greater than your fears. And so that's how Charlie came about. And one of the best things that Charlie has done was, Charlie has tracheobronchial malacia, so bad airways. And that baby, even on a ventilator, can obstruct and cannot breathe. And I had to wrestle through the fact that he can fill up with secretions and that he can drown right in front of me. And I, in the hospital after Charlie had coded at one point in time and we were doing the resuscitation efforts and I was telling him, what, are you gonna do this today? Are you gonna do this to, not today. You need to breathe. I just put the adoption paperwork in the mail, child. You need to breathe. We're not all done yet. And uh, he was not listening, he's like a teenager, only he's three, you know, whatever. So he finally came back, but it looked like he was brain dead. And so on the way, I just was wrestling with God going, this is too much, this is, this is too much. I don't know how you expect me to stay close to this baby when I cannot have any influence over how it is that he dies. And God just said, your stranglehold on how it is that you're gonna do things that I ask you to do has got to loosen up. You need to go into this with hands open and say, that will be done. 
and help me like it and help me deal with what you asked me to do. And I have had to say, I'm not going to put conditions on how it is that Charlie dies because I want him in spite of how difficult it might be when he passes away and how helpless I might feel in that situation because somebody needs to stay. Somebody needs to stay and not leave him to die by himself. So, uh, Emmeline, Charlie, you've had 15 other kids yeah, have come in like and, and, and some have been adopted and nursed back to health. And real quick, tell us uh, about T-Bear. Okay, so Charlie is adopted and he was supposed to die by the time he was 18 months and he's three and a half now and he's still kicking and doing just fine. So <laughs> that is what love can do for a baby. Same medical treatment, same all that kind of stuff, but I'm telling you, being in a family and being loved makes a huge difference. That child is thriving in spite of his medical issues. So then we also have a 14-year-old who has been with us um, for roughly 10 months. He has been unable to move or to speak or to get out of bed for a little over a year. He has a disease that is destroying most of his brain and he will die from it. And he's 14 and he needed a family and someone who was willing to walk him home. Now, one of the difficulties with him is he kind of flirts with death and then he comes back and then he, then he looks like he's dying and then he comes back and that can just be exhausting and you can think, I can't, I can't, I can't do this. And a couple of weeks ago, we had another issue with him and he was <sighs> racing down to the, to the hospital because I still have to do that. I'm not going into details about why it is that we still have to chase to the hospital when this kind of stuff happens, but I did. And I, and I looked at him and I said, buddy, are we in or are we out? Are we done or are we not done? Are we grieving or are we not grieving yet? And uh, he, because he's nonverbal, of course could not tell me. Well, he rallied enough that I had gone home Saturday night, Sunday morning, um, I had gone home because I do have a, a family and I've got a lot of people I gotta juggle, not just this one kiddo. And uh, so he was stable and he was at the hospital and he was well taken care of. So I went home Saturday night to be with the rest of my gang to go see Tim Hawkins. Sunday morning they called and said, come pick him up. And I said, well, we were, we were gonna meet with a neurologist and kind of have a plan and we were gonna do all this other stuff. And I mean, quite frankly, he's scaring me. And, uh, and they said, well, we understand that, but you know, it's 6,000 some dollars a day. We, we're not keeping him here, so come get him. And I called our social worker and she said, Corey, you have a choice. You do not have to take him home. You know, maybe mentally he doesn't know that much anymore, and, and whether he goes to a nursing home or he comes home with you, no one here is telling you you have to do this. And so I'm crying, I'm sitting on the front porch, and my 19-year-old comes out, and she says, what are you doing? And I said, I don't know, maybe this is more than our family should deal with, maybe it's more than what I can deal with. And, and she said, excuse me? <laughs> Corey Salkert doesn't quit. He is not too much, Mom. I'm going to go get my clothes on, and I'm going with you, and we're going to go pick him up, and we're going to bring him home. So stop with this going back and forth as to whether or not you can do this. Because you know what? I can do this because God has asked me to do this, and that's why. So we went and picked him up and we brought him home, got on our game face. I'm not a Dodgers fan, but you all get the game face thing. Um, 
and I don't like the Cubs either, <laughs> just on principle, because you're from Illinois. Um, anyway, so I brought him home, game face on. I'm a huge Packer fan, and I don't expect you to understand that. Yeah, woo. So we brought him home Sunday night. My husband, my whole family's involved in all of this. This is not a one-man show. If I did not have the support of my kids who are like, hello, you are not quitting. <laughs> no, we're gonna go pick him up and get him home. Stop your ball and wipe your face off and let's get in the van. Um, brought him home and my husband puts him to bed uh, for the night and just changes his diaper for the last time. So we're gonna get shirts that say, our superpower is changing poopy diapers without hurling. So <laughs> that's what we do day in and day out. Um, and so the man is changing the 14-year-old's diaper and giving him his last medication and telling him goodnight. And my husband prefers that we be home rather than us being down at the hospital. I love the Ronald McDonald house and I so appreciate them, but he really likes it when we're home even though it's chaotic. And he reached over and he just rubbed T-Bear's arm and he said, buddy, I'm so glad you're home. And T-Bear opened his eyes and he smiled, and Mark just started bawling because this is a child who does not make eye contact and he doesn't smile and he doesn't talk. And he was telling me about it the next day and we both just said, oh, Corey, if I'm so glad you're home, can you imagine when this buddy dies and when he sees Jesus? When he sees Jesus, he's gonna take his breath away. And he took Emmeline's breath away. And he took my sister Amy's breath away. And he gave them a body that doesn't have to have lungs to breathe anymore. And that that whole idea of he takes your breath away is a good thing. And the reason why we do what we do is the fact that there's almost a 100% death rate. So you know what? Loving people who are gonna die is something we all do. Mm. And these kiddos are gonna die, but we have the ability to step in and make sure that they live before that happens. And we have a hope beyond the grave because Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again, and he conquered death. And Paul says, this light, momentary affliction is nothing compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. And we are taking his word that all of these tears that we shed this side of heaven are gonna be wiped away. So before Corey came, we were kind of trying to figure out what do, what do we do what can we do, you know, what is the next steps? And as a church, I think we, we have some things in the works that we wanna do as a church, but just for Corey and her family, and, and uh, you know, you think that, oh, you know, she's been on people and today and all these things, and so they must have, must have so much support. And, uh, no, she's just, she's a mom, you know, she's doing, doing incredible things and, and doing it as a mom. And um, so we, we tried to ask, hey, how can we help? What can we, and after kind of bugging her a little bit, she said, well, you know, I've been dealing with this illness for a long time and, and I have got some medical expenses from that and, and our house is 95 years old that we bring these kids to and it's got some issues, some foundational issues and some stress. And so, you know, those are some, you know, some immediate needs that we have. And I said, okay, well, you know, I'm gonna bring it to the Seacoast family and just 
And I, I didn't even tell her this, it was just surprise her and say, let's just bring it to the Seacoast family and see if we can't help out. And so um, just with our last couple minutes, we're gonna just take an offering for her and it all goes to her and the kids and, and trying to support what they're doing and, and provide a better facility for these kids and, and, uh, and help their family out. And so we're gonna, we're gonna do that right now. And you can just put it in an envelope, write Corey on it, drop it in here, drop it in one of the, the things in the back. But we just wanna, you know, as she goes back home and cares for these kiddos that, uh, that we, can, uh, we can help support her in that. And so as we do that and we, we close, um, I, there's two main themes that I hear in your story. I hear two things, faithfulness and redemption. Give us just really quick God's faithfulness and his redemption through this. It isn't that I've had not had tragedy in my life. There's been a lot of grief, but I want you to know that being able to lay that at before God, he has been so faithful to answer and that it never has been that I've been left alone even though it felt like it. And another thing was is I was always so willing to go and then God has asked, but are you willing to stay? And are you willing to be faithful right where you are doing what you're doing right now? And a friend of mine told me, she said, I, I can't see you staying home with one baby. I just don't know that you would be content to do that. And that's really not a very good judgment of my character. <laughs> or maybe it is a, it's, it's not good, it, but it was a judgment of my character. And I just told her, I said, I just want to be faithful to do what it is that God gives me to do. So when he says, whatever your hand finds to do, do all to the glory of God, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do. So you know what? Day in and day out, my doing what exactly what God wants to do looks like being a mom. And I want to be faithful to do what he's called me to do day in and day out. And right now that looks like laundry and cleaning and dishes and diapers. And it's amazing what it is that happens when God steps in and transforms all that mundane because that's what he's asked me to do. And I'm gonna do it and then I'm gonna stand there before him and he's gonna say, I'm so glad you're home. You did good. You did what I asked you to do. That's great. Let me, uh, let me pray. Lord God, we thank you for uh, Corey and, and, of course, her family. Um, we know that it's not just her, but she's a representative of um, an entire family that has come together and decided um, to do things that many of us uh, couldn't imagine um, turning our life upside down and, and doing. And yet... Um, she may not see it in the day-to-day, -day, but you are using her in some pretty profound ways, um, some significant life-changing ways. And so, Lord God, we would just pray for their family, um, that you would continue to um, support them physically and emotionally and spiritually and help them to continue to say yes to you every single day. And for the rest of us, that we would be challenged and maybe pushed out of our comfort zone, that there are some things that you want us to do. It could be anything from just being a great parent to something like moving across uh, the world to serve you. Whatever it is, Lord God, and anything in between, we just pray that um, our answer would be yes and that we would be faithful. And so, Lord, we thank you. We love you. It's your name we pray. Amen. <laughs>